like men are generally um, raised to be risk inclined and like sports actually to me plays into that like you know men's sports or boys sports in like middle and high school are usually heavy contact high risk uh, and when you fall down, you know, no one's babying you and coming over to you and saying, oh, my God, are you OK? You're told to get back up and get over it. Right. Versus like girls, the cross wear skirts and can't check each other. Right. Like I think it I think it genuinely comes down to like five to six year old girls being told that they can't be in contact sports or that maybe they shouldn't take that other math class. It starts really early on. And most of what I've found is like. Uh, most of the men that I interact with don't know what they're doing any more than the women who know what they're doing. If anything, the women who are working under them are frequently more qualified and they just aren't willing to take the leap. Times are related is your currency. Welcome back, everybody, to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. If this is your first time checking out the show, thanks very much for being here. I am Pat McCauley, as always. Uh, This week's episode is another in a string of badass female guests. Uh, So this week's guest is Aurora Strauss. Um, Aurora is one of the only female professional race car drivers in the country. Um, She's 21 now, but uh, when she was in her late teens... She was actually the only female teenage race car driver, professional race car driver in North America, uh, which is just crazy. Um, And she also uh, attends Harvard. Um, She is also the founder of the nonprofit Girls With Drive, um, which has this incredible mission of encouraging young women to get active in male-dominated fields. Um just an incredible mission. Uh, and we talk all about that in the episode. Uh, we also talk about how she got into racing, um, growing up in New York, uh, the different paths, uh, to become a professional race car driver in her path. Um, what she views as her biggest accomplishments on and off the track, uh, why building a racing career is actually very similar to building a startup. Um, a ton of it is fundraising and deals and sponsorships. Um, and she talks about how, you know, 90% really is about the business side of it. And uh, you really have to pave your own path. And, and it's a startup. It's just like a startup, which, which was interesting. Um, the role a fellow Boston female entrepreneur, uh, Zoe Berry, uh, has played uh, in in her success and in her life as a mentor. Um, the physical demands and how she trains for racing. Uh, and then we also talk about the mental side, um, how she handles the risk of, you know, driving like 200 miles an hour <laughs> around a track. There's obvious risks and how she uh, mentally um, is able to uh, do what she does. Um, and then we end with talking about why she believes women are taught from a young age to be risk averse. And this was the most interesting part of the conversation for me. Um, because as she was talking, I found, I found myself like nodding my head. Every example she gave, um, I resonated with, um, I grew up in a house full of women and I have, you know, these badass women in my life that, 
are overqualified for what they do, to be honest with you. And, but still many of them lack confidence and, and belief in themselves um, and don't feel qualified enough to kind of become the CEO or kind of take the next big step. Um, whereas, you know, myself and my brothers and, um, some of the men in my life seem to be able to go like zero to 60, even when they're not qualified to go to 60, (laughs) you know, it's like they, you know, they're 22 and they just start the business without any background or they're, you know, 26 and they take the CEO position without really as much, uh, you know, background as a lot of women, I think, feel they need to take those roles. Um, And this is me summarizing what she is saying, because I think it's just spot on. Um, And she thinks that comes all the way back to, um, you know, being a five, six year old girl and playing sports and the differences between guys and girls sports and how girls are treated differently growing up. I just found it fascinating. Um, And I just really love her message. She is one of the most, she is the most impressive. What am I saying? One of the most, she is the most impressive 21 year old human being I've ever met. You know, she's Monday through Wednesday. She's in a lecture hall at Harvard. Then Thursday to Sunday, she's, you know, going 170, 75 miles an hour in a BMW M4 GT4, like down in Daytona. Um, all well, you know, giving back and encouraging young girls to, you know, pursue their dreams. I mean, it's unbelievable. I cannot say enough about Aurora, um, and all she's doing. And you are going to hear more, um, from Aurora in the years to come. Um, whether it's racing or not racing, um, you, you'll know her name. Something tells me that. So enjoy this one. Follow Aurora Strauss, uh, on Instagram and Facebook and, in all the places to follow her. Without further ado, the incredible Aurora Strauss. All right, Aurora, we're at the. I'm, I'm at the correct Darwin's now. Yes, I'm sorry. I I'm at. I was at the wrong Darwin's. I think. I know. I learned that there's like four Darwin's in Boston. I actually was only like kind of semi-vaguely aware of that uh, until I looked it up on Google Maps just confirmed that I had sent you the right location and then realized <laughs> that I just never sent you a location. Yeah, I did um, not know that. First time to any Darwins I've hit to today. But yes. I should have picked up that we were near MIT and not Harvard. Uh, it's totally fine. Well, this is, totally this is my Darwins. This is, this is the Darwins, the only Darwins that I care about. Yeah, well, well thanks again for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And we, so you got on my radar. You spoke at Gibson Sotheby's. Yes. And uh, my friend Paul, who you met, he sent me a picture of you guys. Yeah. And you took a picture with Paul, and he was like, you know, this young lady just spoke at my event, and she's like this race car driver, and she's not only a badass race car driver, but she's doing this amazing stuff for young young girls and women, and he just like sent me this long text, and he's like, you got to get in touch with her. That's awesome. Well, I'm super super glad he did. Thank you, Paul, if you're listening. (laughs) Thank you, Paul, yeah. Um, so yeah, I have like, I don't know the full story. I've okay. done, you know, some basic Googling and, and things like that, yep. but I totally am fired up to, to get the full story. Awesome. And I guess 
the the right place to start. The place I'm curious is how just your path into racing began. Like, how did... I know you're from New York, so yes. I, like that's like the last place I picture like somebody. I, I mean, I know upstate New York's a little different, but I don't mm-hmm. picture like. hundred percent. I actually the first time I came to Harvard for an orientation program, I was I was still deciding between two different schools, and they have this thing called Visitas, uh, which is a pun on their motto Veritas, right? Uh, and it's to encourage all of the accepted students to choose Harvard, increase their yield rate. And I had someone come up to me, and they were like, "You're that race car driver," and I was like, "Yeah." They were like. I thought you were going to be like a redneck from Kentucky or something. I was like, (laughs) no, I'm from Metro New York. (laughs) So you you have a good point. Um, I grew up, like you said, in upstate New York in a tiny town called Cold Spring, about an hour and a half away from the city. Okay. Um, And I got involved in racing because of my dad. My dad loves cars. He's a huge gearhead. He, I'm pretty sure he built his first engine when he was like 16 or 17. He just thinks that way. He has a very kind of mathematically inclined brain he you know he he notices from an engineering standpoint things that fit together things that don't he's one of the smartest people I know uh, and then when I was 13 he taught me how to drive a manual car and the idea was not that I would be a race car driver it was that we would have something to bond you know to bond over uh, I was I think at that point, a little bit closer mentally to my mom. I wanted to be a folk singer and an elementary school teacher when I grew up. Uh, I was completely risk averse. Like I was unwilling to do any sport other than track and field because I was scared. Like that was just not standard trope of a race car driver. And I just fell in love with it. At that point, I was like four foot eight or four foot nine. So I was tiny, everyone else had hit their growth spurts, and I just realized that I was in control of this machinery and I felt so powerful, and it's fun. It's from, if you like math and science, um, racing is an awesome sport to kind of investigate. Uh, I loved math and science at that point, I still do, and it just felt like, I think it was the perfect combination of like competition, I'm incredibly competitive, and power over this machinery that made me feel bigger and more in control when you're a middle school girl control is worth a lot to you um and also just the machinery itself like the mechanics behind it was really intriguing to me I'd never really begun to unpack anything that complicated and unpacking it with my dad was a source of a lot of bonding for us so um, I got involved in it because of him and then now is he from like middle America or is he from New York too uh, he was born and raised mostly in Boston okay. and then partially in New York. So he went to the same high school as me, um, stayed in the Northeast, I think, for college. He went to Franklin Marshall, and then he moved to Atlanta. He worked at Coca-Cola for years, so we are hardcore Coca-Cola fans. So is that where, did it happen in Atlanta where his, like, love for cars came, or? I think he, I mean... I think he's loved cars for pretty mm. much his entire life. He used to have a poster on his wall of the Lamborghini Diablo, uh, and that was maybe the 1970s and 80s. So it's been there for a long time, and he, as long as I can remember, he has always loved cars, always wanted really cool cars. It's been a huge passion of his. He had a Harley Davidson, like a motorcycle, mm. when I was younger, and then when my sister was born, I think he decided like it's time to get rid of it. He's a family man, you know. And he traded in for, I think, a Lotus Elise. So he's always loved things with engines, the mechanics behind it. Um, And I guess I just inherited it, yeah. And then I fell in love with it at 14 years old 
for my birthday, I got a three-day race school. Uh, there were these programs at the point that it's don't... It's hilarious because you can't legally drive. No, right? <laughs> no. But you can legally drive on track starting at 14. Really? Yes, okay. depending on which track and what their insurance policies are. That makes zero are. sense, right? It's like... I would well, say, I I would say it doesn't, but okay. I would also argue like, so a lot of kids starting go-karts when they're two or three years old and the 14 year old rule isn't necessarily designed for people like me that had never been in a car ever. Mm -hmm. It worked out for me, but it's mostly designed for the standard race car driver that started in go-karts because their father raced and their grandfather gotcha, before gotcha. that and their great grandfather before that. And they usually start in carts when they're maybe two or three years old. Mm -hmm. um, and that's their whole life. A ton of people I know have never even been to school. So, very different path to racing. I never really thought I was going to do professionally. I just, yeah, so I fell did, into it. When did you when did you realize you were good at it? I'm still kind of realizing I'm good at it. <laughs> um, I've always, I, I think something that I have struggled with a lot, and I've been very open about this, is kind of my own confidence behind the wheel and knowing that I can do it. Um, it's been a learning process for me, mostly just because so during this first three-day race school, I had one of the instructors there who was very well-intentioned uh, offer me help, you know, after the race school day ended. And he sat right seat with me for one lap on track and we pulled in and he was like, look, I like you, so I'm going to be honest with you. You just aren't cut out for this. You know, you break like a girl. You aren't aggressive enough. Um, you aren't confident enough outside the car. Like this he sport. He said you break like a girl. He said you break like a girl. Wow. Exact words. And That's he, and he cool. pretty much said... Yeah, but I actually think he, you know, I think in a lot of ways, based on my personality at that point, he was right. I'm an incredibly competitive person, but I wasn't really sure what I was doing yet. And he basically said, like, this sport is incredibly cutthroat. It's every person for themselves. Like, it's very tough. Um, you crash, you know, you, you put your life on the line and you put a lot of other people's money on the line and you need to go into this knowing wholeheartedly you can do it and he was sure that I just couldn't that I wasn't cut out for it and I'm a very different person now because of racing than mm. I was when I was 13 I think most people are probably very different than they were when they were 13 right but I just didn't have the confidence at that point um and he pointed it out and I actually consider it a huge gift which sounds really weird but yeah. I didn't have the confidence um but I was as competitive back then as I am now and I was so determined to prove this guy wrong that I had just had an instant chip on my shoulder. And I was mm. like, I need to continue doing this just because, like, I want to know I can do it. And mm. once I prove I can do it, I can stop. And then I started to really fall in love with it pretty much in, like, a very vain attempt to prove this guy wrong. Yeah. So. But I love who you took, like, <laughs> because you easily could have, like, let that experience, like, totally end your your career and and walk away from it and you, yeah. you chose to take it and say hey that you know it happened for me not to me and i'm gonna i'm gonna take that experience and, and yeah build off of it yeah and, and part of the reason i'm huge. so open about that experience is because i think that that's the experience of a lot of girls and young women who are interested in racing and it is like it's hard enough being a 14 year old girl right like it sucks being a 14 year old period um, so I think hearing that was, it was a huge turning point for me. And I do think honestly that my reaction to it would have been very different if I hadn't been raised the way I had by the people who raised me. You know, mm. I, I grew up with parents who never ever told me I couldn't do something. It was always, well, you know, that'll be harder or you're going to have to work more for that. But there was never any conversation about like, I mean, it was always assumed that I was going to do something awesome. Mm. Um, and that is just the mentality that I was raised with was very business oriented. It was very competitive. 
it was super supportive. I grew up around a slew of really powerful women. So I think if I didn't have that support system who kind of, you know, reached back out to me when I was like, oh my God, can I do this? I'm like, yeah, of course you can. Like, it'll be hard, but of course you can. You could do anything. You know, you could also go be a professional runner, like whatever you want to do, it's, it's out there. Um, and if I didn't have that, and I think a lot of girls don't, I don't think I'd be racing. Totally. And that's huge because I know, and in my life, like I've hit certain points. I used to play sports, played sports yeah. in college. And, you know, depending on the coach I had or the interaction I had, right, with a friend or parent's friend or whatever, um, or a friend's parent, I mean, yeah. you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, you can go play Division Three, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't want to play Division Three. Like, I want to, like, go to the NFL, right? Yeah. But it's like the more people that tell you that, it's just kind of like, if you don't have somebody in your life, like the strong women in your life that are like, right. you can do anything, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that just always gets me still to this day when I hear kind of older people tell young people, like, lim- limit their beliefs. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, how does the actual sport, knowing nothing about it, yep. <laughs> how do you, like, what are the steps, like, of, of that is becoming a very pro? good question. That's a very good question because the lines are very blurred in racing more so than in any other sport. So in most sports, like, for example, you mentioned like football, maybe Um, in football, you have like little peewee leagues. You have kids that are like, you know, tackling each other. They're three or four years old. And that's where the foundation start. It's a family event. Mm -hmm. And then you have kind of middle and high school football. Then you hopefully get a scholarship or college. And then if that goes well, you go into the NFL. Very clear hierarchy. Totally. Um, Racing is very different. So there are different types of racing. I'm a sports car racer, which is essentially mostly cars that are adapted from the street. So the car that so I like drive... So you can buy the car, essentially. Well, a, a mod- the, yes. the street version. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I drive a BMW M4 GT4. Yeah. So 80% of the parts on my M4 GT4 race car are actually exactly the same as the parts on the M4 street car. Uh, the parts that are different are usually things that we make carbon fiber, so it's lighter. We have a full roll cage. Obviously, the M4 doesn't. Otherwise, it would be super uncomfortable. So small changes like that, but on a very basic level in terms of... Um, like the chassis, the most of the bodywork, the engine, the transmission, things like that. That's all stock. Uh, so that is really the idea behind sports car racing is it's meant to be kind of parallel or tangential to manufacturers that are selling road cars for kind of the average gearhead or you know automotive yeah. enthusiast. So I do that. Um, I'll focus specifically on that for the purposes of this conversation, just because the pallets are totally different for formula cars or stock cars. Mm -hmm. So it gets even more complicated. But as it pertains to sports car racing, um, you usually have to start, or your most kids start in go-karts across the board, across any type of racing. You can also start directly in cars like I did. That's a less common path. And then from there, you have amateur racing. So some examples of amateur racing are like the Sports Car Club of America or SCCA runs events. There are all sorts of races in Mazda Miatas because those are the cheapest possible form of uh, and safest form of racing if you are getting involved in it but don't have a huge budget. Mm -hmm. And then from there you have kind of quote unquote, right, semi-professional and then professional racing. Uh, Semi-professional are generally things with pro-am lineups. So it's very physically and mentally draining to be in a race car. 
And what sports car racing does sometimes is you have endurance races that are an hour or longer. Most of the races I run are a bare minimum of two hours, sometimes up to 24. And then you have multiple drivers. So, for example, in a two-hour lineup in a semi-professional race series, you have an amateur driver and then you have a pro driver. And that is really how you can transition from being an amateur to a pro as you run in these pro-am series. And then you establish that you're a fast amateur and people start to notice you. And from there, it's actually very hard to define what being a pro in racing means because there are some people who have gone pro, but racing requires a lot of money. So you either raise sponsorship money on your own, you happen to have family money, you have someone in your life who has a lot of money who really believes believes in you and wants to support you or you get a contract with a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Those are all actually ways to go pro. You have to get approved for a license to run in a professional series, but it doesn't matter where the money comes from. So there are professional racers that are fully self-funded who are really, really good, wow. but you know, just happen to have the financial background to be able to drop millions of dollars a year on racing. So they didn't have to kind of climb that same exact path. They had it they had to have raced before. Yes, like, you need to right? you need to go through those steps, yeah. but you don't have to go through the arduous process of the finding the resources and the connections. Yeah. And part of what makes it's like the raising money world, for a business, right? Ex- it's exactly yeah. the same thing. It's yeah. fundraising. Yeah. And you know, if you're a serial entrepreneur who's made a lot of money, a lot of times you'll just put your own money into the original startup costs. Like yeah. your seed round is basically you. Like you're mm-hmm. the friends and family round you're putting whatever half a million dollars into um, the new LLC you're creating, you're hiring the first person out of your pocket because it's way easier than trying to get someone else to invest. Um, And sometimes it's more rewarding, but the reality is very few people have the option to do that. So Mm -hmm. that's why when you asked if there's a path, I was like, I guess there, there technically is, but everyone's path is incredibly different depending on what resources they have access to. And there are people who are genuinely entirely self-funded who are super respected in the industry, who are really good. And the opposite's true. There are people who are like scraping for sponsorship money just to try and run in an amateur series. Mm. In what percentage on all levels is it male versus female? It's gotta be it's a good 90% question. male, right? M- way more, yeah. More. more. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this year was a record-breaking year in the professional sports car industry in terms of the number of women. So. For example, I was at Daytona last weekend. Um, there were probably seven or eight women there total, and there were probably like 300 plus drivers. Mm. But that's more women than there have ever been before. Yeah. I mean, there were a million press so releases like about it. There were a million stories. Two percent, maybe. <laughs> Not even. Yeah. yeah, but but that was like exciting for me. I was yeah. like, I can't believe that I'm actually on track with another woman, and it's like. And it's normal. I, I have gotten very used to being the only woman on track. Um, almost every other woman has too. It is... I, I don't know the exact percentages of women in the kind of amateur, semi-pro, pro racing world, but they generally hover around there, like 1% to 2%. Um, that's a total guesstimate based off of my experience. And I did go through those that, that process. So up until middle of 2018, I had very rarely been on track with other women. Now it's usually normal that I'll be on track with maybe one other. Um, but even then, more than two is an anomaly. Yeah. And do you feel like fans and yes. uh, everybody <laughs> in the sport is like super supportive of that? Like I picture like oh. Daytona and like 
I picture like a bunch of like dudes drinking heavily that like brought their Winnebago in and are like yelling. <laughs> like, I'm how... sorry if anyone listening to this likes NASCAR, but you're thinking of NASCAR. So okay, okay. <laughs> uh, you're you're partially right. So I think. Part of what's unique about sports car racing, which I really like, is it attracts very different crowds. So at Daytona. um, Okay, I got you. I'm picturing now, you're totally right. I'm thinking of NASCAR. Now thinking of like high-end like BMWs and things like that. Both are there. So the the answer to your original question is (laughs) most people are incredibly supportive. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the face of the industry is changing. People are realizing how important it is to have representation, taking out any personal feelings you have about the subject from a completely, you know, business related standpoint. It's really good to have more women involved in racing because we come with sponsorship money because we're in high demand and there's a low supply of us. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's, I think beneficial for everyone to have more women in racing because if I'm on track side by side with another male racer, he's getting TV time on NBC sports that he wouldn't be getting otherwise. And I think everyone's recognizing that like from, from that standpoint, from a sponsorship and partnership standpoint, there is more money in having more diverse representation. Mm, Totally. Um, From a personal standpoint, I think most people, you know, most of the guys have daughters and sisters and, and mothers and, are very well aware of the fact that they were kind of raised in an environment with where they had the opportunity to be a race car driver and most of the women around them weren't. So I think, you know, I think almost everyone I know, the other drivers, uh, team owners, sponsors, particularly my sponsors actually, are really in it for the right reasons, want to help me, are excited to have me there. There are obviously exceptions. Um, there are more than a few exceptions, but... Yeah. The, how those exceptions play out and how people feel about it, I think has gotten a bit more, a bit less explicit. Like it's not people walking up to me being like, you shouldn't be able to do this because you're, you know, because you're a girl or like, I think it's, it's turned, it's starting to manifest itself in different ways. And I I think it's significantly less common obviously than it was in like the seventies and Mm eighties. Cool. Cool. And what would you say is your, from your perspective, your biggest accomplishment? to date in the sport hmm. on track or off track either one okay on track let's do can we do one yeah let's do yes. one of both actually. okay yeah on track <laughs> um my biggest accomplishment was my first pro race win it was in a really competitive class which you know i care a lot about because sometimes in racing you end up with classes that are slightly less competitive or you happen to have a better car and it just makes it a little bit easier but i actually feel like i properly won this one Mm -hmm. um i was i think i got into the car in fourth or fifth in class because my co-driver handed it off to me this is 2018 i'd never won a professional race before um and I had a group of Girl Scouts there from my nonprofit, Girls with Drive, and they had been there that morning for an educational program. They learned about the physics and math behind my BMW M4 race car. And they were all watching me when I went across the line. So when I went up on the podium, they all came up with me. It was awesome. I was still under 21 at that point, so they gave me sparkling cider, which I could then <laughs> give to the girls because it was I sparkling saw that cider. Photo. I was like, I was like, something doesn't add up here. Is yeah. that allowed? Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was allowed. I actually still get sparkling cider sometimes when I'm on the podium because people just assume that I'm under 21 because they've known me since I was like really young. Totally, totally. Um, side note, but but yeah, that was my biggest. I, I actually don't think that it was my best driving. 
and the nature of the sports car racing world is that when you have endurance races, sometimes you can have a really good stint and your co-driver can have a really bad stint or someone just runs into you out of nowhere and there's nothing you can do and vice versa, right? Like someone could... So um, I think my best driving was probably at Daytona in 2018, but unfortunately that car didn't finish. So two different answers. Best result was... That's the one I'm proudest of in terms of like everything that I had to do to work towards that. Very Best cool. driving was, was at Daytona. Very cool. And off the track. Off the track. Um, I think everything, this, is, this isn't necessarily one set event that I can point to, but 95% of the work that goes into racing, and this is something that I think people just tend not to understand, especially if you don't follow the racing world, is raising sponsorship money and negotiating contracts. And most people I know have had their parents negotiate their contracts for them when they were younger, or they just hire an agency. Mm. Or if you have enough money, you kind of just don't care. Um, and I think that in the span of the last two years, I am incredibly proud of how I have been able to raise the sponsorship money and negotiate all of my own deals and that has been a deliberate choice i could probably hand that off to a lawyer or to a manager and i don't want to uh part mm. of it is just because i micromanage everything i'm a control freak but most of it is just because i think that even if there are people who are actually more qualified to do that stuff than me you become qualified to do things by doing them and love it this is my own career it's you know the stakes are that i don't race it's on me um, and no one is ever going to have his personal stake in making sure that this money gets raised or that the right contract gets signed than, than I do. And, you know, the flip side of that is it's really terrifying because it's really hard to, like, you know, go into a lecture hall and think about, like, the Odyssey for an hour and a half when you have just been told <laughs> that you might lose out on, like, an $800,000 deal, right? Um, so it's, it's definitely a weird dual world and I have to compartmentalize it sometimes just because the stakes feel so high. Um, but I've learned a lot about myself and how to develop good relationships with people and who I want to be as a business person, right? Because I'm part of my kind of how I operate is that I raise all the own money, it goes directly through me and then I'm the one who distributes it. And I have the really awesome I'm in the awesome position at that point of being able to choose like who I want in my corner, like um, not all money is equal shades of green, right? So mm. like who do I want to align myself with? I'm, I would much rather have a like really quality multi-year partnership with someone who I can authentically represent. Like my partnership with BMW is awesome. The, as a brand, they are so authentically involved in women's empowerment and ask if ask what they can do pretty much on a weekly basis and they don't publicize that like they're not necessarily I mean obviously from a business standpoint like they want some sort of ROI out of me but most of what they ask you know in terms of what they can do from a girls with drive standpoint it's not really for that much personal gain it's because they think it's the right thing to do and I try to align myself with as many partners as that and I'm really proud of the people who I have in my corner right now mm, I love it where does like your knowledge slash drive slash like desire to do all that like I pick up like you know I'm you know I've raised money for businesses and yeah. I've run businesses and and things like that and like some of the things like you're doing it's very um, similar yeah but like even just like one-on-one -on -one right here like before restarting you asking like what can you do for me during the interview yeah like that's just like a little thing that like 
is very, I would say, like high level oh, thing to you. do from like <laughs> a you. connect and, and kind of relationship building thing. Um, like where does it all come from? Like you're, you're 21, you're, you're not studying business, right? No, I'm you're studying stu- yeah. history and government. Right, at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like where does, have you just learned to, as you've gone and you've kind of sat across from people a lot and just like, is it a learn as you go type thing? The short answer is yes. Yeah. Um, I also think in terms of where it comes from, you know, I, I would repeat what I said earlier, but like I w- was not always like this. I, you know, I didn't, I think to a certain extent I was always, I, I was the kid who was called bossy, right? Which I think we've hopefully gotten to the point in 2020 where we stop calling girls bossy all the time. Mm. But that was, that was the adjective used to describe me. But I still lacked some confidence. And I think part of what has helped me transition, actually most of what has helped me transition into where I am now is a female mentor. Um, I knew that I had gotten to the point in 2017 when I was graduating from high school where I realized that I was pretty good at this, that I could do it. I had landed my first sponsor, but I had one sponsor. Uh, They were paying for the majority of a relatively low budget program. And I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to actually pursue this and take a year off of school and defer Harvard, or if I wanted to, you know, just go to Harvard and live my normal life and Mm. be in an acapella group and, you know, do that. And... I met a woman named Zoe Berry, who actually lives in Boston, okay. at a racetrack one day. And she looked like she was maybe early 20s. She was actually like 35 or something like that. <laughs> okay. And she, we were the only two women at the track. So she came up to me, she introduced herself, and she noticed. She said, you know, I noticed you're doing your physics homework at a racetrack. Like, who are you? Why are you here? And we started talking, and it turned out she was the sole founder and CEO of a digital health startup in Boston. and. I just totally, like, I fell in love with her. I had a total friend crush on her. I wanted to spend 16 hours a day around her just watching her and learning all of the good and the bad of running a company like that. And I asked her if she could pay me whatever I need to be able to, like, shelter and feed myself so I could move to Boston and work directly for her and I would take time off of school. And she actually said yes, which is crazy. Like, she took a huge risk on me. She met me at a racetrack, knew nothing about me other than... I was considering dropping out of school to race cars and just set, you know, gave me a job. So super thankful to her, cannot believe that she did that. And I worked for her full time for a year and watching, you know, she, she existed in kind of the intersection of this biotech and tech space, which both of those are incredibly male dominated. Plus she was raising venture capital money, which, you know, 2% of VC money more or less in the US goes to women. Mm-hmm. So. She was in the same boat, if not even worse than the boat I was in at that point. And watching her navigate that, you know, the good and the bad and everything in between was like maybe the best thing that has ever happened to me. So that's where most of this actually comes from. Like I landed my first sponsor while I was working directly for her. She was the one who taught me how to fundraise. She taught me how to use PowerPoint, how to make a pitch deck, how to analyze marketing material in terms of like, okay, you know, take all these raw, take all this raw data on Excel spreadsheet and can you figure out how to distill it into what is the average income of the person on your social media? Where do you get that data from? Uh, what does it mean? How do you monetize that? Those were all things that she taught me. Mm. So, I mean, that was amazing. And I actually started Girls With Drive after I started working for Zoe because I watched my own transformation and I thought, like, God, if, if every girl, or not every girl, if, if, you know, one out of every, like, 50 girls had an opportunity to do what I did with Zoe and just, like, observe and get paid what you need to get paid just to survive mm-hmm. for a year, I mean, 
I cannot imagine the amount of like female brain power that would be harnessed mm. if we just like gave people access to internships and opportunities like that for like six months. Because mm. I am a completely different person. I love that. I love that story too because I, I feel like so many life-changing relationships come from like a bold ask or a bold move, right? Yes. And like you were like ballsy enough to make that ask and say, I'll come to Boston, right? I just need to be able to live, right? Yeah. And I don't think, like a lot of people I see, they're not willing to like, I had an amazing guy on, on the podcast who was uh, Tom Brady's manager. Oh, interesting. And he kind of got his foot in the door by just finding somebody high up that he admired and working for him for free. Yes. And just doing free stuff for him. And he's like, I will do anything just to like be in your realm and learn from you. Yeah. And that's so powerful and so many people aren't willing to do it. Um, yeah. And, and you'd be surprised what people are willing to do if you ask them. And you know? people that, and people want to help, you know, they, yeah. if they've achieved some level of success, they want to, they want to help somebody else get there, you know? Absolutely. I mean, Zoe has changed my life. Like I would love to be someone else's Zoe 10 years from now. Or now, I don't know. I don't really have the capacity to do that right now. And I think give another girl what I feel like I got or what I would want to mm. give. Um, but I would love to be in the position one day when I can like take someone else in like that and change their life like that. Totally. So yeah, it's a it's a snowball effect, right? That now you're gonna go out and impact even more people than you already are. And you mentioned girls with drive. So can we yeah. jump into that and like how and why all that started? Yep. Well, you just heard the why. Yep. Um, I think it had been building up for a while. Part of my realization that Girls With Drive was needed, right? That like there was an empty space that needed to be filled by something like that um, was also just my experiences at the track overall. The face of the racing industry in terms of the you know amount of female representation has completely changed in the last few years. When I first started at, I think my first pro race was 15 or 16, Mm -hmm. Um, during my first races, I was pretty much the only girl almost every time. And I had young girls coming up to me who were there with their dads and their older brothers, who were usually why they were there. And they would always say, I didn't know girls were allowed to race. I probably heard mm. the word allowed every single weekend, at least once, which is mm. way too much. I mean, you should never, ever think that you are not allowed to do something. You can think that something's really hard. You should not yeah. think that you are completely prohibited from entering the space at all. So I kept hearing that and you know I I think that the wheel started turning internally for me at 16 or 17 when I was like wow I I actually really feel like I need to be here. Um you know I love racing, I love the competition, I like winning. It's one of my favorite things ever. So <laughs> you know there was a lot of really personal reasons why I liked racing, but I also was like even separately from all of that just by existing in this space it's really clear that these girls like want to get involved in the racing world, that they're looking for something, right? Like maybe a lot of them were really young. They may not necessarily be in the position to come up to me and be, have a bold ask, like my ask with Zoe, but um, the demand is there, right? Like women want to get involved in racing. Mothers were coming up to me saying like, oh my gosh, where did you learn this from? Like, I always wanted to do this when I was younger. It's so cool. Like I always used to work on cars with my dad. Mm. So there's this, I, I think there's kind of this emerging community of women who really can and should get involved in racing that just don't really have an outlet. And sometimes all you need is more women there. Mm. So that was pretty much, that was the foundation of Girls With Drive. Zoe helped me come up with the idea 
for educational programs and internship programs to help directly get women more involved. And I started running programs beginning of 2018. And it was just me. It still, for the most part, is just me, with the exception of a couple partners who helped me out in terms of uh, money and you know giving me spaces for internships and funding. Um, but my first program, yeah, beginning of 2018, I had, I think, 40 girls there. I reached out to them by going onto the National Girl Scout site and then looking up troops near the racetracks I was going to cool. and reaching out to their troop leaders and saying, like, hi, I just paid personally for a bunch of these tickets. Would you like to come? Yeah. Um, and it was very, like, personal. I just, I always felt like I, you know, did something meaningful out of a race weekend instead of driving around in circles uh, if I had those girls there. So it wasn't really a set program at first. It was very much me just, like, paying to get these girls there. I came up with my own educational program on PowerPoint. I didn't have the help of any actual educators. Um, so super grassroots. And then it just slowly developed into this thing. I mean, not by accident, right? A lot of hard work has been put into it. But it still kind of has maintained that level of grassroots organization. And every woman that I have who helps me run these programs is not doing it for money. They are often working full-time jobs, which at the racetrack during an active race weekend usually means like 18-hour workdays. And they're taking time out of when they would otherwise be eating or sleeping pretty much to come help me. So I run two main programs right now. One of them is the STEM behind a race car. So it's the science and engineering behind it. And I have programs that are geared towards two different age levels. One of them is really simple math and physics. So, for example, what makes the friction on race tires different from the friction on street tires? They get to go feel the difference. They go to a tire factory on site and see what that's like. Um, things like that. So very math related. Mm -hmm. And then I have a whole separate program that's about the business of racing. And that's where mostly the, the other women come in. Is I introduce them to a series of women in the motorsports industry who are operating in traditionally male-dominated fields who are making waves that... And, you know, a lot of them don't really work in areas where they would be heavily publicized or aren't necessarily front-facing personalities. So, and most of them offer to do these programs and take time out of their days and like prepare Q&As and speeches just because they didn't have that person when they were interested in getting into motorsports and they want to be that person. So mm. it's super powerful because it's so grassroots and I, I'm trying actually not to lose that as I think about scaling the program as, and as I'm getting access to more funding. Like I actually would like to keep pretty much the same program I have now. I have awesome women on the team. Uh, this past weekend at Daytona, my team manager and my chief of tires and, and truck driver are actually both women, which is awesome. Like, so Jamie Eversley, my, the truck driver and the chief of tires for my team, is um, the only female truck driver, I might misquote this, she's the only female truck driver in motorsports in wow. North, America and can, North America and Mexico. So cool. So she's also awesome, and she works really well with the girls. I'm like on the verge of just handing girls a drive over to her because <laughs> she's so good at it. And Linda Randall is the team manager for my program as well. So I have two amazing women who are operating in spaces where, I mean, quite literally no women before Jamie Eversley have been in her space. Being a chief of tires is hard. You know, she was always told when she was younger that she could never do it even though she loved tires and the mechanics behind a car because she wouldn't be able to physically lift up the right. tires. So she actually trains to 
be able to do her job well, which is awesome. And Linda as a team manager, like she is, if I'm the front facing part of the team, she is kind of on the back end handling all of the logistics. It's like, I call it a traveling circus. You know, there are hospitality tents, there are race trailers. You need to make sure that you have pretty much every spare part imaginable in case you need to replace anything on the car. You have a team of, at minimum, like 15 plus people. You have to get the drivers in, you have to organize accommodations, you have to make sure they all have like actual licenses and credentials to get on site. Um, I'm like, that's the tip of the iceberg, right? And she does all of that. It's insane. So you're like this like traveling band of like badass women. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> Influencing younger women at the same time. I like to think of so it that cool. way. And and we run the programs at every single race. So my next race that I'm running a Girls With Drive program at is in mid-March in Central Florida. Um, yeah, there's some really awesome women on the program. And it's really amazing just watching them being real. I mean, we had a 24-hour race this past weekend. These women were literally pulling all-nighters for their job. Mm. And the day beforehand when they would have probably been happy to sleep we're running Q&As with Girl Scouts. Mm. So it's pretty cool. That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah, I always say, like, if somebody else has done it, you can do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, but, like, I say that as a white dude, right? And it's like the things, so, right, there's, <laughs> I, I, me by default, like, I have somebody that looks like me, maybe came from my background, that has accomplished what I want to accomplish. So, like, I can see how, like, you as a female and young young girls who as you said they don't have that person that is the that's why they don't think they're allowed to do it. they don't have that person right. that looks like them and is like them that was able to do it so like I just think that's super cool thank you so much thank you and the racing world still has a long way to go I mean I think to that yeah. end part of the reason why I include all these other women is because I don't look like and talk like and feel like a lot of these girls I mean None of the women in my program are people of color, and it's mm. not because I wouldn't love to have someone in my program who can kind of better reach out to any young girls of color who are coming to my programs. It's because they like don't exist. Mm. I mean, there like there are already very few people of color in the racing world. There are very few women in the racing world. The intersection of that, I can't actually think of anyone. Um, so I think I think you know. The racing world is making huge strides in terms of its willingness to reach out to more diverse groups and also its understanding of why that's important, right? Like, I think that 10 years ago, the racing world was in a totally different headspace than it is now. And my marketing, if anything, is actually, a case, you know, case in point kind of example of that. Like, I have super wholesome marketing. It's very authentic. It's just me at school or with my Girl Scouts. Like, <laughs> I, I don't really have to do the traditional very kind of feminine risque trope that other female race car drivers have done in the past right mm -hmm. so yeah I think like the fact that I've been successful with that is a huge positive but there are many many steps to be taken because at the end of the day like I am kind of a very well-educated white girl mm -hmm. and the reason that I'm in the position to start Girls with Drive is because I had access to these resources and I'm trying to give other people access to those resources who mm -hmm. otherwise wouldn't have them but I don't I mean my job is done when like I'm not the person at you know holding the mic anymore if that makes sense yeah totally I love it thank I you I love it I love it so I want to I want to change directions a yeah. little bit <laughs> yeah. so I know like there's definitely people that I remember like I don't know how many years ago but 
uh, Donovan McNabb, the like yeah. announcer football guy, like yeah, was in a bunch of heat because he said like NASCAR drivers aren't athletes and race car drivers aren't athletes, right? Yep. So I want to like kind of dive into like that, like what are some of the physical demands of the sport, and what do you do to train to be able to handle that slash you know perform at the level you do. So physically and mentally, a lot of your training for racing is dependent on the type of car you're in and the type of racing you do. So I guess I'll talk about me specifically. I do endurance sports car racing. So for what I'm doing right now, you know, currently with my BMW M4 GT4, most of what I need to focus on is physical and mental endurance, not necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it doesn't matter if I can like bench 200 pounds right? right what matters if I can bench less than that for a longer period of time the same thing is true of running um, a lot of endurance racers are also really intense endurance athletes who like run half marathons and triathlons in their spare time yeah so I've read that about some NASCAR guys like they super are serious fit. endurance athletes yeah. super fail endurance is probably the biggest uh, aspect from a physical standpoint of racing that really crosses over amongst different categories. So stock car racing, you also have to be pretty fit. Uh, Sports car racing, you have to be, again, like you have to have good endurance. The same thing is true in formula racing. The difference among cars and the difference in training mostly comes out in terms of really the specific car itself and what kind of racing you're doing. So my M4 GT4, for example, has a really, really hard brake pedal. I don't have as much downforce as a formula car. So my ability to keep my neck straight isn't necessarily a priority for me. Like I don't necessarily do neck strengthening exercises for this car, but because the brake pedal on this car happens to be so hard and I don't necessarily have the body mass behind me to like, (laughs) seriously, like you're, you're training your legs, Um, you're training your legs and your hips. So another thing that's important for me specifically is, you know, I, I have a custom seat that is meant to hold me in place at all times. But the reality is that doesn't happen just because over time, as you're exposing yourself and the car to, uh, you know, a ton of different G-forces in every single corner, mm. um, your belts are going to shift a little bit, your seat's going to shift a little bit, you lose a lot of water weight, so, like, I actually, I probably lose multiple pounds of water weight per hour that I'm in the car. Because um, I was going to ask, like, you can't, like, take your hand off the wheel and, like, you know, squirt back some water, right? That's a very, that's a very good question. <laughs> like, you can't drink We actually throughout. have drink bottles in the car, so I'm, I'm kind of... It's a bit of a side note, but like, I, I want to go back one second. Yeah, yeah. So you have to train different parts of your body. For my car specifically, I'm training my legs. For a program that I haven't announced yet in the near future, I will be have to training a lot more. I'll have to be training a lot more for G forces. So mm-hmm. I'll have to have more neck strength, um, a lot more upper body strength. Like I'm on a program right now. I know I look like it, but I'm trying to bulk up actually, which is harder for my body type specifically. But like mm-hmm. I'm working really hard to be at a calorie surplus. I'm working really hard to develop my upper body, uh, which is something that I haven't had to do for racing in the past. So Get another tomato soup. Another yeah. tomato soup, please. <laughs> <laughs> yep. More bread. Well, you saw how quickly I grabbed that bagel. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm working on that right now, and that's dependent on the car. So the car that I'm driving in the future will have more G-forces, um, will have more downforce. So very dependent. And what you said about water. Uh, yeah. We lose a ton of water weight. We lose... A ton of like most of what the, the general process is like you either have water or some sort of sports drink in the car, yep. especially in endurance racing. So like I in a two hour race, I'll only do one stint. 
Um, in a four-hour race, I'll do one or two stints. In a 24-hour race, you might be doing anywhere from three to like six stints, depending on how hot it is. If you're double, single or double stinting, like how many hours you're in there, depending on what your tire and fuel strategy is. So in cases like that, you do have a water bottle in the car. Um, You can replace the water bottle if you're running a 24-hour race, and there is a crew member that is specifically dedicated to replacing the water bottle. And we have a uh, a tube that's in our helmets gotcha. that you can grab and put in your mouth during usually cautions. You don't really want to do it, like you said, while you're at speed. Yeah. But whenever there's a big crash on track, they call it a double yellow or a caution, and they pack everyone back up and you have to slow down. Mm. So that's a really good time to grab the water. I usually forget until I, like actually feel sick and I'm like oh right I that's it's because I've lost five pounds of water weight and Mm. I need to hydrate or I'm gonna pass out um but on really hot days because we do also race over the summer it's also common for people to get IV drips when they get out of the car just to rehydrate you eat as much as possible like sports drinks with carbs are good um plain pasta like nothing that will upset your stomach but just as much calorie like as much caloric intake Mm -hmm. as possible you try to sleep during a 24-hour race, but you usually don't so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's crazy. Like, I, I guess I never, like, thought of it as endurance. But, like, I see, like, that's very similar to, like, somebody running, like, a 100-mile race. It's like they're stopping. Like, they're, they're just getting as many calories in as they can without, like, yeah, making them physically sick for what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and I think... <clears throat> And it's it's tough because I, I actually do understand the argument behind, you know, racing is a very different type of sport than mm. other sports. You don't necessarily personally see the physical exertion totally, of totally. the person in the car. So it's much harder to conceptualize. And it's especially hard to conceptualize when you're used to driving on the street and you have power steering and you have ABS and you have boosted brakes and you have AC. And oh, so there's all kinds of things you can't have. So depending like on the car. Okay, yeah, yeah. Depending on the car. Gotcha. Um, and downforce, yeah. So, like, for example, right, most most brakes in on streetcars are, are boosted. It's pretty easy to press the brake. It yeah. is not easy to press the brake in most cars. It oh. actually takes, like, a good amount of physical power exertion. power steering? Uh, power steering, it depends on the race car. Wow. Yeah. If you don't have power steering, though, like, it, for a 24-hour race, it yeah. sucks. It really I've sucks. I've had, like, the power steering go in my car before. Oh my god! Well, trying to do like a three-point turn is deathly. (laughs) Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be able to do that at speed. Um, Wow. And it again, it depends on the type of car. Some cars, and it depends on the series you're running in, Mm. uh, because some sanctioning bodies will allow driver aids and others won't. It's so as as of very recently, like pretty much the last two years, um, new race cars that are coming out are required to have some sort of AC, and that's a huge breakthrough. And it's. The fact that it's required and mandated is, you know, car companies are coming up with creative ways to have it not take away as much horsepower, have it come from alternative sources. You know, it's um, it's it's getting easier to keep the inside of the car cooler. But at one point a few years ago, I mean, when I was racing in 2017, the inside of my car, because we didn't have any AC, over the summer would get up to like 130 to 150 degrees Fahrenheit. So you're physically Crazy. exhausting yourself, but you're also just sweating because it's hot as hell. Yeah. Um, so things are getting, I think technological aids are gradually making it easier. Mm-hmm. But again, it depends on the car in the series because I know a lot of stock car ra- uh, race cars still don't have AC. That My M4 GT4 does, and it's a really new thing for me. And it's like, 
It's weird. I mean, I'm still sweating a lot, but I'm not, I don't actually like get sick, which is a right. new feeling for me. <laughs> right. So the mental side, like I'm curious on the mental side, because that has to be such a massive part. And the only thing I can maybe like think might compare is like I road bike a lot. Oh, and yeah. if I'm going down a mountain or down a, a big hill, right? And you're on a bike, right? And no, you that's can, stressful. if you choose to, you can go 60 miles an hour. You can yeah. take your hand off the brake and go 60 miles an hour down that hill. But you run the risk of really hurting yourself, yeah. Really injuring yourself. So, like, <laughs> let's see. But, like, the best riders in the world take that risk and are able to, like, deal with that risk. And so, like, how do you, like, mentally, like, take yourself to that place where you're, like, right on that edge of. Hmm. danger but what you need to do to win most race car drivers i know are crazy so there is that no like (laughs) that's the honest answer like i i think most people i know myself included just i i can't really describe what it is for me personally with racing but i don't really get scared in the car um i acknowledge risk like i think that there's you know there have been cases like at one point in in a race in 2016 um my belts came undone like my the the thing that you know the thing that unclips all the belts got caught on my mm-hmm. suit and when I p- turned to the right I was surrounded by the race cars and all my belts just came undone wow. I pulled into the pits to get them redone just because I, I bet I know most people I know like that has happened to them and they reclip them on track while they are racing wow. so I, I can acknowledge those boundaries m- for the most part but I wasn't necessarily terrified at that point I was like oh you know well I'll try to clip them over the course of the rest of the lap. And if I can, I'll probably just pit. Like, I'm middle to back of the pack anyway right now. The stakes aren't very high. But if I was winning the race, I, like, probably would have stayed out. Mm. So I think part of the mental game is honestly just, like, having your own limits. And most race car drivers I know don't really have them. Um, I'm sure that would change if I ever, you know, have a family or if anything else in my life changes. But right now, like, it's, it's... close it like there's a reason that race car drivers have historically been like these crazy like badass borderline kind of terrifyingly idiotic like like I think I think to a certain extent that trope is kind of true like Mm -hmm. most guys I know who race and they're all we're all good friends yeah Yeah, I mean most most of the craziest people I know are race car drivers for sure Mm -hmm. um I don't know anyone who would do most of stuff and and it carries in other parts of their lives right like so many people I know have gotten hurt doing stupid shit they're all race car drivers um, so that's, that's a really short answer from a mental standpoint in terms of like mental stamina, uh, totally a huge factor when it comes to being in the race car, especially in endurance racing. I mean, part of the deal with endurance racing is you're trying to conserve fuel and tires depending on the moment. So a lot of the game is, you know, for example, at Daytona last week, I think I turned a low one minute 54 lap, which is pretty good. Um, but my team might have at one point in the race come on the radio and said, hey, we need you to do consistent 155.5s. And your goal as a driver is to run within maybe give or take a tenth of that. And you do actually feel tenths of a second in the car. I can't really describe it, but you just do. Mm -hmm. But that takes a ton of mental energy. Just um, having, you know, having to do the same exact thing, lap after lap, lap after lap when pretty much all the variables around you are changing. You know, the track conditions are changing. Someone might crash right in front of you. Um, You're also having to deal with, 
reading out, you know, you have to figure out what your fueling scenario is. You're communicating with the engineer and the pit strategist and the crew chief, and it's really mentally draining. And in a 24-hour race, you might be doing a two to three hour stint if you're one of the night drivers and then you sleep for a couple hours eat as much as you can get an IV drip and then you get back into the car so mentally it's pretty exhausting like mm -hmm. that was my benchmark for what is mentally exhausting so the first time I took the SAT I was like it's a big it's a big deal with this like it's <laughs> yeah. it's only a four hour it's only four hours yeah. of focusing like that's fine I'm not gonna injure myself <laughs> or, or die if I fail it Right. But, but it was also just like this, like you're, you get so used to intensely focusing yeah. on something. And that's actually part of what I love about racing is I, um, I don't want to say get easily distracted by things, but I definitely like multitasking and I'm very like, I am frequently doing one thing while thinking about another. I, it's not necessarily like an ADD thing. It's more so like, I just get so like excited about things that I'll really frequently sidetrack and you can't do that in a race car. Mm. You can't, like, distracting yourself puts mm. you at risk for crashing the car and wasting hundreds of thousands, if not more, dollars that are not yours, um, putting yourself at risk, hurting yourself, sacrificing the result. There are well over a dozen guys in the pits. Like, it's, it's a team sport. Yeah, right. Um, and your job as a member of that team is to focus mm -hmm. on the 200 feet of asphalt in front of you. You don't have to you know, figure out pit strategy. You don't have to do anything else. You have to just drive what they tell you to, like drive the time that they tell you to drive as consistently as possible. And you need to see basically things that are happening in front of you before they happen. Mm. Mm. I could go all day, but I don't want to keep you. Oh, it's okay. So, I, so interesting. Um, so one more for you. Okay. To a, maybe a young woman young lady listening out there or anybody really yeah that you mentioned confidence earlier that doesn't feel they don't have the confidence to say i can be in aurora i can be whoever yeah the kind of that person they they strive to be is what what sort of advice would you give i think most women i know are that person i used to be um, actually run workshops on this all the time for, for sponsors and partners. I, I do like educational and, and like professional clinics on, you know, how do you come up with tangible steps to increase your confidence? Um, I think the short answer that I always give, and I think it's like a tried, it's just like a basic truth that exists across every type of industry that I've encountered is most people who are succeeding don't know what they're doing either right like yeah. I, I think I say that all the time. and that there are so many studies out there that show that like women are very risk averse they're very you know on average right not all the time on average they're uh significantly less likely to tell someone that they can deliver on something when they actually don't know if they can or to get involved in something that is high risk. Like part of the reason that only 2% of VC funding goes to women is because there are very few female entrepreneurs because it's a really high risk, high reward life. Mm. And women just aren't necessarily bred to be like that. Like men are generally um, raised to be risk inclined. And like sports actually to me plays into that. Like you know, men's sports or boys' sports in, like, middle and high school are usually heavy contact, high mm -hmm. risk. Uh, and when you fall down, you know, no one's babying you and coming over to you and saying, oh, my God, are you okay? You're told to get back up and get over it, right? Versus, like, 
girls the cross wear skirts and can't check each other, right? Like I think totally, it, yeah. I think it genuinely comes down to like five to six year old girls being mm. told that they can't be in contact sports or that maybe they shouldn't take that other math class. It starts really early on. Mm. And most of what I've found is like, uh, most of the men that I interact with don't know what they're doing any more than the women who know what they're doing. If anything, the women who are working under them are frequently more qualified and they just aren't willing to take the leap. And like so much of racing for me has been trying to sell pretty much thin air, right? Like I have to convince people or before I actually have a pre-existing race program because I can only sign a contract when I know how much money I have on the table and how much I can commit in terms of like time and finances. Like I need to tell people that they just need to blindly trust me with hundreds of thousands of dollars when I'm 21 years old. I don't have a college degree. I've only been <laughs> racing for a couple years. Like, and you just do it. And I, and I think so many men out there have made it happen from a racing perspective. And why can't I? And I think Zoe said the same thing. It worked for her. Her company was acquired. I think, it, you know, so much of succeeding in life is kind of a fake it till you make yeah. it thing. And I just think women are really frequently just unwilling to do that because it goes against how they've been raised. Like, they, you know, you think that you need to already have delivered on something, but part of gaining experience is throwing yourself in the deep end. So mm. I usually just tell women, like, even if you don't feel like you have the confidence, like there are lots of small steps that you can take to basically force yourself to. Like when I was um, 16, I had actually a cross country coach at the time say like, why do you apologize every five seconds? And that's a thing that women do. Mm. I used to do it all the time. I still do it all the time. Like I automatically, when I don't respond to an email within one day, I immediately write, an, I write something at the top of it that's like, I'm so sorry for the long delay in writing back to you. When like no one's yeah, ever actually sorry too. for that. I No, I totally did too. <laughs> but no one's ever sorry about that. Like I wasn't sorry for not responding to you immediately. I'd stuff to do, right? Like I had to get on with my life. Like I had a ton of stuff that was taking up time. And very few people actually don't respond to an email and are like, oh my God, like, I am so apologetic about that. So I have a shortcut in my computer, not my phone, and I think I actually emailed you on my phone, but on my computer, whenever I write sorry, it just automatically <laughs> corrects it to, like it rewrites it and says, thank you so much for your patience. Yeah. Like, thank you for your patience or something love like it, that. Love it. And it, even if I like delete it and then just write I'm sorry, it's just a near daily reminder of like, are you actually sorry for this? Like, how much are you actually underselling yourself? Um, so there are things like that, like you can add in shortcuts. Um, whenever you're creating a pitch deck or like you're in an interview, uh, so many, like I was talking to my, my a good friend's older sister at one point a couple weeks ago, and she had just finished a job interview and she was writing an email back. And part of what I talked to her about is she, I, I read the email because I was sitting next to her and she was talking about how she really thinks she could kind of grow into this role and you know she just needs some time to get the new experience and I was like don't you have like five years working in a job that's very similar mm -hmm. to this and she was like oh well yeah and I asked her what her past experience was and she described all of these projects that she's managed and like you know newspaper articles that she's written that have gotten awards like she has this crazy resume and based on the way she was writing, I thought that she was like a high school intern just begging for an unpaid job. Mm -hmm. And so many women kind of, I think, for good reasons, right? Because yeah. often, like, they're, they're nervous about people um, assuming that maybe they're a little bit too bossy. Like, the bossy trope is totally fair. Like, I've been called intense mm -hmm. by other men and other women with a bad connotation. It's usually not meant as a compliment. And I think 
in order to avoid that heartbreak, a lot of women just kind of try to bypass it completely. But you're never going to succeed by underselling yourself. Yeah, I love that. So you reminded me as you were talking, I have five sisters. Yeah. And my girlfriend, too, I, I see this in a lot, where she's such a badass. Like, she's had all these jobs that she's just totally crushed, right? And she'll say things like, oh, well, you know, that person's more senior than I am or something. So I couldn't, like, you know, jump into that, like, CTO role or, you know, yeah. whatever. She's in the, in the tech world. It's like they probably and have like, no idea what they're doing yeah, either. <laughs> can. Like, yeah. look at all you've done, and it's... um. Yeah, it's, I would agree, definitely. Meanwhile, like, myself and, um, you know, my older brother are these people that are just, like, zero experience, jump right into, you know, starting a business or whatever. When it's how you're raised, it genuinely comes down to, like, the context sports you played when you were five. That's so interesting you say that, yeah. It's a great point. So I I really do, and part of the mission with Girls With Drive is, like, I see this happening in so many women, and I've run a good number of clinics at this point where it's it's pretty much just, like, a roundtable discussion of, like, how have you personally combated this? And I've heard all these crazy stories of women like passing up on jobs because they just don't think they're ready for them. And like, why would you do that? Like, why would Mm -hmm. you ever pass up on an opportunity that like, like an opportunity of the lifetime that you have acknowledged that you wanted? Mm. Um, And I do think, you know, why I've been asked before by Girls With Drive is cater to such a young audience when it could be cater to kind of women who want to find entry-level jobs in the racing world. And I think that helping women get involved in the racing world is kind of a band-aid, right? Like, I think the reason that there are very few women who even want to be involved in the racing world, and there are very few women because girls are systematically discouraged from it. So I'm kind of in it for the 30-year plan. Mm. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you again. And I just want to acknowledge you for everything you're doing, your, your success, and the way you give back is, like, just so powerful. Thank you so much. um, Yeah, you're just, you're a badass. I wish you all the luck with whatever's next. Um, And keep going. And if I can help in any way, you let me know. I will let you know. know. I will. Thank you so much for having me. I am never shy about asking for help with the stuff. So I'll I'll let you, I will let your girlfriend know if I ever want her to run a Girls with Drive program. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Y'all